0: You're going to not give the people what they want, and that's high quality, well-articulated content. Charisse is going to dial it in today, half-assing it.
1: Half-assing it. I mean, it's been almost 160 episodes. If there's a time to begin half-assing it, it is now a pretty good time for that.
0: I do not condone that. Although I do have a dinner to go to today, too. We,
1: we both have dinners to go we to. We both
0: have birthday dinners to go to.
1: Mine's not a birthday dinner. Did no. I say that?
0: Ronan's 10th oh. birthday. Shout out to Ronan, the kid that got me on Fortnite. Thank you. He
1: doesn't listen to this podcast. This is a 10-year-old
0: I can snip kid up this of vid. a friend
1: that yeah. Eugene plays Fortnite with.
0: Most recently, not that often.
1: It used to be semi-frequently. What happened? He got better than you? This is Making It Up co-hosted by myself, Sharice Poon, and Eugene Kan. We come together on a weekly basis to talk about things that we are interested in, have questions about, want to get each other's thoughts on. Making Up is produced by MakeIn, which is original storytelling at its purest through captivating audio, engaging words, and beautiful visuals.
0: Making it up is an exercise in analyzing and dissecting important movements in creative culture. It's an opportunity to sound off on each other and make sense of the complex, intertwined world we live in.
1: We try to come to some sort of conclusion in order to be helpful to you, our listeners. But really, we are working through things and we appreciate you working through them with us.
0: If you like what you hear and want to help us keep going, you can support us on patreon.com making. Let's get into it.
1: He replaced you no, with a better our schedules, of people.
0: Our schedules didn't align.
1: By the Dude, time you be- start playing, he's been in bed for four hours. If I
0: log on to Fortnite, it's usually after 11 p.m.
1: Yeah, I noticed. Well, what do you mean? Shows up on Discord. To be
0: honest, I try to close my Discord so people don't know I'm playing Fortnite.
1: <laughs> Listen, I don't try to snoop on you. It just so happens that sometimes I have Discord open to do A lot other of people things. are thinking,
0: they're like, yo, man, this middle-aged man is playing Fortnite.
1: I don't think anyone thinks anything. Well, also, dude, you have now announced it to this podcast. Dude, the average so.
0: age of my quote unquote squad, well into its mid thirties.
1: I mean, nobody knows that in the world of Fortnite. The teenager just you guys play. Anyways, with don't let's know not that. talk about this. Right. It's just
0: depressing. I don't know. I'm
1: playing God of War. That's my newest game. What I've is moved that? on. It's it's actually quite a good story game. It's about. At its core, I mean, it's, it's, it's a lot of things. God of
0: War, the dude with the like gray-colored skin that's just massive and chunky on the yes. So I guess I but they had was... a
1: soft reboot, and the latest one I'm the heck playing is a
0: soft reboot.
1: A soft reboot means that you overwrite some elements of the previous episodes. They didn't app but not update basically, sure, but the game version of that. Anyway, the reason I'm playing it is because the story at its core is about a father and son relationship. I mean, there's a lot of fighting, but I like the father-son relationship part of this. And I just don't get the same joy from watching playthroughs. Like, some people do that. Instead of playing the game themselves, they'll just watch. You don't know this?
0: Dude, that's so weird.
1: Like, people make master cuts of all you know how games have cut scenes right yeah so where it's just like a video essentially and you watch something happen people make master cuts of the cut scenes in games which wind up being like four or five hours yeah you know all told added together and people just watch those like a movie
0: that's like, like crazy. two movies anyway that just wholly reinforces my belief that sports traditional sports is totally on its way out. oh
1: but i don't know
0: Dude man, think but about it. Be, the, this the, is this is 4 or 5 hours that was dedicated to something else the in the past. The thing
1: that I miss, so we had a little bit of a side conversation on Discord about traditional sports which was one of our topics of consideration for last week's MIU. The thing I miss is where you knew everyone was watching the same thing at the same time.
0: Which yes, 100%. So which is my argument why we'll never have those moments again.
1: It doesn't have to be traditional sports, but I would love for us to still coalesce around a singular moment. Like the Oscars, for example.
0: But the Oscars obviously isn't it anymore either. No. It's not the Oscars. It's not the Super Bowl. It's not going to be the World Cup.
1: People aren't interested.
0: Like the absolute. Versus. The The Meghan Harry
1: Oprah interview.
0: Dude, there's going to be a lot of people that probably aren't aware of that either. Although. Yeah. I do think that did hit pretty hard amongst a certain demographic.
1: Mm -hmm. A lot of people were chatting about it on the weekend. All right. You first or me? You go first. Okay. All right. My subject this week comes from a video recently released by Vox titled How Museum Gift Shops Decide What to Sell, produced by Antonella Christian Benny. And there's a longer article on the subject, also from Vox, their goods vertical, by the author Michaela Marini Higgs. The Vox video is just like five minutes, but it was nice that they also did a longer article that was about maybe Uh, 1,200 words.
0: I kind of like it when you have these mixed medium approaches to the same topic because some people digest and absorb information differently.
1: And it's a perfect example of like extended learning. So watch the video and then I found out, oh, hey, there's actually more details if I'm curious.
0: Yeah, because we kind of tried that with Macon. I mean, just bandwidth issues aside, like you would have maybe a two hour interview. Yeah. Alongside, well, it was an equally long, like, three thousand word piece. But <laughs> you know, it's kind of like. Along and making
1: we're not very good at short content, but you are right. We would publish a written version that was different from the audio version.
0: In the past, yeah. And that's
1: pretty cool. Anyway, subject about museum gift shops. Some facts for you. On average, the museum gift shop contributes somewhere between five to seven percent of a museum's overall revenue source being the Museum Store Association. So they are a significant part of the museum's bottom line. And what is interesting is that a museum is often funded by like donations and grants and government money, and that's often tied to being used in specific ways, whereas the store money can be used at the museum's discretion.
0: Oh, interesting.
1: Yeah, I thought that was like a little interesting I don't know if detail. you
0: know the answer to this, but are virtually all museums supported by some sort of public entity i mean some obviously there's private museums but like the bigger ones like a smithsonian or like a mocha or something there has to be some sort of i want to say yes
1: i'm only hesitating because i don't have like the stat in front of me i would say a huge part of museums comes from private donations Mm -hmm. and then that's up to that donor to decide how they want it to be used. Yep. And they can, you know, obviously because they're giving this giant gift of money, they can specify, right? So I, just, I thought that was a little interesting detail, not really the main part of this subject, but something I didn't know beforehand. What is interesting overall that I think is worth talking about is that the people who do the museum store think of it not just as an economic, you know, revenue source, but also educational, and brand building mm. so it extends the gallery experience and highlights you know aspects of whatever shows are on that are important so they can do this through you know getting specific products in the store yeah. that are related to like key pieces but they can also do it through packaging and display text or choice of um what's that called visual merchandising yeah displays so an example I really liked was the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts did this Rudon store where they actually renovated the store to look like the artist's studio.
0: Oh, that's pretty cool.
1: Yeah, it is pretty cool. So it's like, I mean, you are selling people stuff. There are products on display, Yeah, but there is an You're, element that's different from the gallery.
0: It's like art commerce. It's basically a con- a continuation of the story.
1: So I personally love museum gift stores. I'm not at all like a cynical person about it because i because i can only say like okay intellectually i understand that the blurring of art and commerce can be complicated so it influences the appreciation of art it might manipulate what curators put on show you know the direction of exhibitions like the focus based off of the commerce side however my personal experience is that I really enjoy shopping at the museum.
0: I'm trying to think of the last museum I went to where I bought something. I think increasingly more, I think more recently, I've probably been a little bit more inclined to buy something. Why but is that? I don't know. Well, I mean, but I think recent. maybe because I had one experience that was positive, where we were in Mexico City and went to the Frida Kahlo Museum, and we bought, I think it was something stupid. I think it was a magnet or something. And I was like, oh, this is like actually just a symbolic reminder of having gone there and actually it's less about that actual museum but more symbolic of the trip Mm. so i can see it being a powerful object in a broader context it's almost as like the sort of tap on the shoulder oh remember this yeah and also i think well you know what maybe it's also because i learned quite a bit about her as an artist i to be honest i mean this is probably gonna diminish my reputation even more but like i had no idea who she was right
1: that's okay i mean i don't know do we, do we expect that of people not everyone studies Frida's art history big, no i'm trying to give you a pass here but she's pretty
0: big am I when i, I realized i'm like mm, am i supposed to wow, hate on Eugene. you while
1: standing in front of you like yeah. i'm not gonna do that yeah no it's funny that we're talking about frida Kahlo is an amazing artist but i do think your experience about this magnet or whatever you bought being indicative of like that entire trip is a really key reason people take things home from the museum. And also museum curators understand that. Like they, in this article slash video, said that the shop enhances the experience by providing visitors the opportunity to take something tangible away with them and make memories last. So every time you see the magnet or whatever you bought or the cup, it's not so much about like, the art on the physical object as it is like a physical reminder of this experience you had.
0: This is kind of an aside, but most recently I've been thinking a lot about the relationships we have with cultural objects. So fashion, call it a cultural object for this argument's sake, right? In general, you hear, you've known about this concept of like push-pull, right? Fashion is something that is pulled into our life because when we leave the house, we have to go, we have to open up. Our wardrobe, pull something out, and that is our relationship with it. And then on the flip side, art is kind of this push concept because it's just omnipresent. Like I'm looking behind you right now, I see a bunch of stickers, and I'm like, oh yeah, that's like, that's pushed onto me. I didn't go out of my way to seek it or look at it. Right. So I think that's one of the interesting things about art is that it just exists and it has this ability to just like find a way to slipstream into your life and create or remind you of a moment. And that's something really interesting because when I think of cultural objects, I wonder if it doesn't fall within these two binaries, does it have value beyond financial? Mm. And there, oh, I may as well say why this came out. It was like, it was kind of my own personal sort of analysis on the value of like crypto art or digital art in general that doesn't, that had to sit in a wallet, right? I just
1: open this Whole other door. Now no, we're not i think even we even going to be talking about museums. No,
0: but you can start and stop there because that's basically where it yeah. came from, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, about art, I'm of the position that it would be great if more people pulled art into their lives so that it wasn't just environmental push onto you through different places you go or what you see, but that you actively wanted art to be a part of your life. Mm-hmm. I'm not even specifying like what type of art. Like, I really think. You know, it's up to every individual to decide what kind of art they appreciate. And I think that for me is one thing I really like about this art commerce overlap is that you might start not being a big art appreciator. You go to a museum and then you're like, I had a really good time with my friends or family. I'm going to pick up this postcard and you put it on your fridge. And then just by it being present in your home, it leads to art appreciation and acquisition yeah. being a part of who you are and what you're yeah. interested in. Yeah. So like that's kind of this sequence of events in an ideal scenario mm-hmm. of how art becomes a part of someone's life. Yeah. So I also thought what was interesting to talk about is this psychological aspect, which I kind of hinted on by the postcard in your on your fridge concept. So the Vox video says there is an effect called the mirror exposure effect which is that the more we see something, the more positively we'll feel about it. And there's debate about whether this is real. Okay. That's
0: called an advertisement, Charisse. (sighs) Really?
1: Okay, but it's not just... Okay, so I don't know. I really questioned whether this is true. Because sometimes you see something more and you hate it more. Got it. Right? Like
0: Yeah, there's certain things where I I listen or consume for the first time and I have a very strong reaction and then it softens up by the second or third time. Okay. And look, it grows on you. Basically the concept yeah, yeah, of growing yeah. on you. Yes, yeah.
1: it's the concept of growing on you. But sometimes it goes the other way, right? Where you see something more and it becomes annoying and irritating. So I don't know how much I personally believe in the exposure effect, but the Vox video argues that mere exposure influences our perception of what is even considered art from like an institutional level. So Vox references... Something in art history from 1989, where the Guerrilla Girls, which is a art collective group, launched a campaign called Do Women Have to Be Naked to Get into the Met Museum? And they were pointing out that less than 5% of the artists in the galleries were women, while 85% of all nudes within the art were female. Interesting. So this was this idea of like calling out homogeneity within museum collections and how that will influence subconsciously what people consider to be art. So you see a female nude in an art piece, sculpture, oil painting, you think of it as art, but when you see a female artist, you might not be inclined as much to think of it as art. And so the art commerce overlap also works in that way, where if a museum gift shop is selling a lot of a specific type of item, you might be inclined more to think of that as important artwork mm-hmm. versus if it wasn't in the gift shop.
0: I guess the one thing that's interesting about the art shop concept is that it kind of makes it the lowest common denominator type play because it's often placed onto everyday objects. And I think that in itself changes the context because I, if I see a piece of art on a cup, Versus seeing it as a canvas could be the same piece of work. But if I'm I'm seeing it for the first time, contextually, I'm looking at it differently.
1: Mm. But if it was like the Mona Lisa, you wouldn't.
0: But that's because there's an existing context that generally speaking, most people have about the Mona Lisa. It's like the most famous painting in the world, right?
1: But if you saw like something that looked like a painting, but it was on a cup. You wouldn't really have this context of
0: it being quote unquote fine art. Right. Yeah. Which I think is interesting. It's just like. That is interesting. Because the medium is such an important vehicle to determine. Like, I'll make this up even more. If, like, let's say hypothetically, your first experience with Basquiat was on Mm. a beer can because they had signed a deal with Budweiser, that would change your context. Because maybe you think Budweiser is a low class beer. Therefore, Basquiat is a low class modern day artists. Like you don't even know any context.
1: I mean, this is a good point in which we can talk about Cause. Yeah. Because so Cause is a fairly well-known artist that people might recognize because of his signature Xing out
0: the popular eyes. characters' yeah. eyes. Hands too, I think.
1: There's X's on the hands, but you'll have seen like Elmo and Sesame Street characters with X's. Type. Because Cause yeah. has done collaborations with so many like popular culture figures. Also, he's really well known for his companion character, which is the sad skull, gray, bulky Michelin man ish looking figure. Mm, Maybe, maybe not Michelin man. He has one collab that has. Yeah.
0: That's yeah. Different.
1: Anyway, enough of an attempt at a visual explanation. So cause is interesting. Um, Eugene had also shared an article that was just about cause from ArtNet, And then Irwin had pointed out in the discord that the gift shop subject and cause were very related, which is true. Mm -hmm. And what you were saying about context is interesting when we think about cause, because a lot of people might experience him for the first time. See his work for the first time as a Uniqlo tee or
0: a toy. Yeah. A figure.
1: Totally. And they might. I don't. Know that I've seen cause in a traditional art context,
0: like you personally. Yeah, like you me haven't personally. seen it at no, no. I Carotan. know, he, I know yeah, it yeah, exists. Yeah. Like yeah. he's
1: in museums and galleries and Art Basel, yeah, but I'm yeah. not sure I have. Yeah, but other than in photos, obviously. Yeah, yeah. So, what does that do to someone's yeah. perception of him?
0: Well, I, I always use this example in that how you see someone for the first time largely defines how you see the brand for. The majority of its existence to you it doesn't mean it can't change but i always use this example because people who might have visited hypebeast for the first time might have thought of it as a sneaker blog but obviously by the time you and i left it was not really a sneaker blog but yeah. it's just that their first experiences with hypebeast were oh it's a sneaker blog yeah right? so it's hard for you to undo that perception even though it changes
1: that's probably some type of effect as well Yeah. Where your first impression has a... Or it's
0: also what you like is what you want to define it as. Because if you like sneakers and Hypebeast was your first foray into sneakers, then the reality is that it doesn't matter if it changes. As long as there's some semblance of that original bit of sneaker culture there, then that is what it is to you.
1: Mm. Relating that back to art on products, it's like how if you see... If you already think of a certain artist as a famous artist and you have their art on a cup, you think of that as an indicator of them being a famous artist, the products. But someone else who has no exposure, who has no context, won't Mm -hmm. perceive it that way. One thing I was thinking about, because I read these two articles side by side, the Artnet news piece by Ben Davis and then this Vox Museum gift shop article video was the difference between modern contemporary art and more historical art from a period of time where all the artists have passed away Mm. essentially because the video is mostly about the met and similar museums like the met where the artists are no longer alive and people might not even think about the individual artists so much as like a period of time Mm. you know like Rococo or Baroque, that type of thing. Like I'm talking oil paintings, yeah. essentially, and the difference between like how people relate to that art on products versus contemporary art, which is so commercialized, as is with cost. So
0: clearly, contemporary art was put down a different commercial path.
1: Yeah, totally.
0: Well, like which th- makes sense. Yeah,
1: historically, because you know people in the 17th century 18th century weren't selling things online
0: i totally now i'm thinking because based off of that for me anyways and i think for people in general lasting power defines how good something is for better or worse it's just a metric right it's like you know you see it on a pair of work boots like this brand's been around since 1895 or whatever right levi's good example so that is the determinant of whether it's good because it's been able to last that long But also, I wonder how much scarcity plays into it. I mean, there are artists out there that have put out a lot of work.
1: I mean, there's still a lot of art from, you know, the past three, four centuries that exists. It's not like there's a real scarcity, even though though it can't be made anymore by those specific individuals.
0: Because the argument is always going to be like, as big as this contemporary artist is today in 2021, will we still be talking about them in 50 years?
1: That's a good question. But
0: also the argument, too, is that... And this is, this is something that's pretty well known. It's you've, Even if you created art three centuries ago, your lasting power is also put in the hands of the rich and famous to carry your legacy on in some capacity. That's something to be considered as well in the grand scheme of things. I don't claim to be some sort of ability to predict, you know, necessarily how that's going to play out. But maybe someone like Cause does have lasting power on the basis that there's so much of his work that people have paid for and paid above retail for that inherently creates a new foundation every time something gets resold there's a new high set right a new a new sort of median of what the price is and maybe that in itself will continue to be a reason why artists exist and i don't know you you can't realistically go back and look at a van gogh and be like oh this is me tracking the trajectory of this painting's resale value and changing hands. But theoretically, if you paid a thousand dollars or something and you sold it to someone for 1500, they would want to get at least 1500. So like that whole wheel starts spinning. Yeah. Anyways, I think we're maybe, I don't know if we're detracting too far. No, but I mean, me think I think it's it. gone
1: into a different place.
0: All we talk about is money and creative stuff now.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, money is a strong motivator. I also think that the commercialization and how much of modern art is like ready-made products will affect its longevity because our attitude towards things you buy and own is different from what you see hanging just on a museum wall. So Mm -hmm. there's that difference between our perception of what should last through time.
0: Yeah. And it's always going to be interesting to see how institutions play a role in building someone up, right? For example, a museum could have been how we traditionally looked at if something was valid or not.
1: Oh yeah. Right.
0: And now maybe it's the marketplace.
1: I mean, I have a lot of personal critique as much as I enjoy museums and gift shops. I do have critique of the amount of power they have in validating who is considered a quotation marks, real artist or significant artist. Also, because they're doing a lot of course correction in terms of representation. Right. So I think the marketplace balancing that out is a good thing, but it would also be encouraging to me to see institutions embrace it as well.
0: Are we looking now? One thing I think is interesting about very accessible products that have no resale value is that the reason why you purchase it is based off of just an inherent love of it. Like you can't make money off it. You're buying this cup because you actually enjoy the cup or the experience. Or maybe it's like, it is maybe a little bit of social signaling in terms of, oh, I was in Mexico City. I was at this place. Versus there's always an investment layer that goes into buying artwork mm. at a higher level. I'm mm-hmm. not talking about like, you know, a, a $50 print, right?
1: No, I know what you mean. Yeah. it's There's yeah. almost like a
0: purity around a mass product because it's potentially being purchased for more wholesome reasons
1: i mean art has been considered a part of your investment portfolio in certain circles like if you are more wealthy it's considered to be a part of your assets yeah but i mean i would say that one i'm not really wealthy enough at that level and two i do mostly engage with art on a personal sentiment yeah all right let's move on Someone told me, but I forget who now, that I've been roasting you more on this podcast. I actually forget who told me this.
0: Did they enjoy it, though?
1: They did enjoy it.
0: We kind of... I don't really roast.
1: You're very nice to me.
0: All right. My topic this week, The Authenticity Trap, Fear and Loathing in the Virtual World by Amanda Greeley. So the premise of this piece tackles why we're so compelled to share and what drives our interest to share. So as, as the topic and title suggests... There's something about authenticity at play here, right? we're trying to signal this authenticity. And I think that's the one thing that uh, drives a lot of behavior online is sharing is signaling. Like, they're interchangeable in a way, for the most part. Like, even if you share a piece of interesting information or an article, you're signaling something. Like, it's your belief, your type of media you consume, etc. Where you've been, whatever.
1: Yeah, I agree.
0: Yeah. So after starting this newsletter, the author, Amanda, asked herself, what's the reason behind this performative act? And there's this quote, I wanted to uncover why I had been compelled not only to write, but to share my writing. For what audience was I performing? Was I showing up authentically? And she puts that in quotes. She goes on to reference a book she had recently read called The Twittering Machine, published in 2019 by Richard Seymour. And in it, and I quote, Seymour examines the human addiction to writing into our devices, the Internet's, parentheses, false, promise of creative autonomy, the potency of connectivity. Suddenly I felt seen, but not in a good way. And she references a quote from the book. In a form of mass, in a form of mass casualization, writers no longer expect to be paid or given employment, tra- given employment contracts. What do the platforms offer us in lieu in lieu of wage. What gets us hooked? Approval, attentions, retweets, shares, likes. And that's a quote from The Twittering Machine by Richard Seymour. And then she arrives at the conclusion that never to this extent have we had to contemplate the disconnect between who we are and who we want to be. And as an aside, I definitely think this is true. One thing the internet has provided us is seeing everything. It's almost as though everything is possible. The highest highs, the lowest lows, all of it is encapsulated and nothing really surprises you anymore, right? So in theory, that world you want to build exists through the lens of somebody else, right? Which I think is really interesting. Like, you know, you go back to like this whole Forbes 30 under 30, like it's such a mindfuck because you're like, oh man, I'm 29 and a half and someone that's 24 has done this already. Right. It's kind of the exact same thing. Like, oh, let's say you have a charity organization. You're like, oh, man, it's like just barely staying above water. Yet someone has done this five years earlier or five years younger than me. And
1: it's just really true that you are forced constantly to see yourself in relation to others, mm-hmm. both ways, both aspirational and things that you don't want to be. Yeah. We're all in the same Internet space together. Yeah. It's. Very strange. Like, we didn't, our brains didn't have to cope with that before. We could just hang out with people who were exactly, basically, in the same life stage as us. Mm -hmm. And maybe one of your friends suddenly, like, something miraculous happened to them and you had to think about it. But on the internet, just there's this, I think of it as like a constant spectrum that you're rearranging yourself in relation to other people.
0: Yeah. You're always trying to find your position amongst it all. And like that's not easy, right? No. It's definitely difficult. And that's something we didn't really experience when we were younger in more segmented worlds. And then one thing that she continues to talk about is the idea of authenticity as the primary driver of our behavior online. And it's about signaling authenticity, whatever the flavor of the week may be. And I say that because when the world of Instagram really kicked up and it started to become more commercialized, there was a very defined Instagram sharing aesthetic. It was like picturesque, perfect, all these things sort of like encapsulated.
1: And it in, wasn't authenticity and obviously not authenticity.
0: I think in the very early stages, people didn't know better. You didn't question it. Like, I don't
1: think the goal was authenticity from a creator point of view.
0: Um, You're right. I think yeah, I think that's what you mean. But I think that the person on the other end consuming it might have thought it was authentic. That's what I meant. Yeah.
1: You're right as well. Like the perception might have been this is authentic, but I think the creator goal in early social media days was this is somehow the best of my work, best photo, best writing, yeah. whatever it is. Yeah. Best trip. Okay. So nowadays it's.
0: Yeah. And I think now it's about what is the middle ground of authenticity, right? It's we've seen what it's like to be very polished. I think we saw it pull back to the realm of being a little bit more raw. And I think at some point we're going to establish a middle point. It's not going to be super high produced, but it won't be just like no thought process, grab a phone and start going. You've talked about this personally. Yeah. And you just kind of figure out what it's going to be. As I start thinking more about it, I kind of land in the same place where Amanda lands in terms of like authentic behaviors and what she says is that at its best i would argue the internet allows us to disconnect our ideas from our physical selves our words can stand on their own and in theory anyone can experience and interpret what i've written here without actually experiencing me in this bizarre abyss lies the opportunity to feel freedom from oneself a world where it doesn't so much matter who the people behind the screen are but what the ideas themselves are and i think that's actually a really interesting thing because It, in some ways, provides so much value towards the ideas we share, which is, in some ways, a way we drive authenticity now, especially as we start to move past a post-materialism world. Where, if we were looking at the Instagram world in the beginning, a lot of it was about product sharing. Like, I've just bought a new handbag, a new pair of sneakers, and I'm sharing that. And I feel like that has moved on. And now it's about the ideas. And that in itself, it's almost this new form of authenticity that because we're kind of over the idea of like what we share in terms of product, we're now moving into something else where it's like more cerebral, harder to share, but potentially more impactful.
1: I think of that as a good thing culturally, Mm -hmm. as you said more cerebral, more friction. We have to think about what we're sharing. But something Amanda also says is that it complicates your relationship with yourself, how Mm -hmm. you perceive yourself. Because when I'm sharing things I buy, yes, there is a signaling element and I'm definitely still saying something by sharing my handbag and sneakers, but it's not as vulnerable Mm. as sharing thoughts that are personal to me yeah i mean that's the same way as like people relate in real life if i just stand in front of you or if i pass someone on the street they can judge me based off of my appearances but it's just this surface appearance yeah. but when i'm speaking to someone and i'm sharing this is what i think and feel i'm opening up myself to debate to criticism yeah something that's gonna impact me on a deeper level as well
0: yeah that's traditionally how i approached sharing on social media like i felt like it's so noisy out there that unless i had something i thought was meaningful to say then i wasn't going to say it and i think that's actually detrimental in terms of well depends if you're trying to build a brand online i think it's actually detrimental i think that the right amount of frequency is actually really important
1: oh i mean we can talk about surely on a technical level that the apps demand Want us frequency to post more
0: often yeah. which i just i i wish that i could just think well actually you know what that's what making up to me is it's an, an ability to actually try to elaborate and clarify thoughts or at least work through them and i know that the context has been set
1: i think though for you you know because of all of your life experiences and who you are as a person you're not as susceptible to criticisms or not as in it wouldn't sway you as much as it might other creators totally. so you write like an editor's letter you know we do this podcast people are totally free to say i don't agree with eugene's argument or even worse right they could say yeah. They could even look at your words. I'm not saying this has happened, but say, ah, Eugene's racist because of X, Y, Z. He's stupid. Just because you write a lot, right? Yeah. So there's a lot of opportunity there to, you know, recontextualize something, which people do sometimes. Yeah. But I don't think like you as a person, like that would really throw you off. But I think that possibility for other people is kind of scary.
0: Yeah. And, you know, when when I go and write a new editor's letter, or when I speak on making it up, it's not, the byproduct of something that was thought about 30 minutes ago, right? It's a lot of ideas and thoughts that have been lingering and or I've tried to poke holes in it. And I I think that's my biggest thing. You know, it goes back to the topic last week. About self-worth? About self-worth and just like being the hater in the room. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because ultimately...
1: Oh, about performative positivity.
0: I've been... I think a lot about a lot of things. And my... Like I said, the initial... reaction i often have to certain ideas or concepts or even my own thoughts like what is the thing that's wrong with it like where where is it wrong where can it be done better and i i think for me that's kind of been my my style is that the acknowledgement of what could go wrong is the place i like to start from and maybe it doesn't allow for the biggest ideas to be put forth, but at least it's not like a scam, right? Like it's been thought (laughs) through where like, hey, you know what? In actuality, there are several factors that are uncertain and we probably should, could address them or not could necessarily at that point in time, but there is a desire to address it because that's where we arrive at a bigger, better opportunity or execution.
1: At least you have confidence through that process in what you are saying publicly. Versus other people who might not, who might, you know, this is the thought that occurred to me. I'm going to write this week's newsletter on it. Yeah. I know for you, things like.
0: Well, sometimes it is like simmer. that. It's kind of figuring out Maybe what I'll is that thing. give you too much credit. But you know, th- th- here's another example. Like I have some friends that, you know, f- that are artists that are in the midst of dropping an NFT and she's shaking her head. But the reason. W- I'm you only have to understand- shaking my
1: head because this entire week. Every time I open any social media platform... It, it was even
0: worse last week. To be honest, it was worse last week. Is it
1: really? It was I don't worse? know. This week's it was been pretty bad off. too. I think well, no, it this makes me not even want to be on any of my social media platforms. Everyone is talking about NFT in some way or the other. Either they are selling an NFT or they're criticizing someone else for selling an NFT, or it's like a thought piece on like the ecological effects. of it. Exactly. Yeah, I just like cannot. I just don't have capacity anymore. Okay, continue. Okay, but continue.
0: But the thing is, the reason why I bring that up is that some of these artists have seen the backlash received by their peers. So now they have to go through a longer process of understanding, can I justify my creation of an NFT? That's all it is. That's a good thing. That's what I'm saying. So that is something that comes up and you need to be considerate of because there's value in going first and there's also like, you have to kind of work through what happens when you don't go first and you actually see people. Like I, I would say that the Apple approach is probably that where they're not always trying to be first and they have time to sit and address the problem more thoroughly.
1: Except that Apple used to be a be-first company. Did they? Yeah.
0: Always, always? I don't they know. They were the
1: first people to bring the personal computer into homes and have people think of it as a personal machine. Okay. Anyway, all, all I'm saying is that business strategies change over time, and so can, I hate to say, I am I already hate myself for the following words personal brand strategy yeah. can also change. I think what's interesting when talking about authenticity and the separation of the ideas you put out there and your physical self. So people yeah. perceive the thing I write and that doesn't mean that they know me. The interesting thing to me is you you are still challenged as a human to really understand yourself yeah. separately from your output, from... The work that you're putting out there. And I think that in itself can be a challenge. Like it's it's easier to just understand yourself through what I make and put out there rather than understanding yourself separately.
0: Can you use an example of that?
1: For example, there is a Macon Patreon member who was sharing about wanting to write in a specific style and having aspirations of writing that way and experimenting with doing that for a month or so, and then finding it not to be quite right. Like there was this disconnected feeling or this just like not totally good fit feeling and then recalibrating, okay, what is it that is authentic? What is it that's true to me to how I want to express myself? And it's interesting to work through that while like publicly creating something. I don't know if I would do that personally like for me i think i try to figure out who i am and what i want to say Mm -hmm. privately and then i go about you know writing the newsletter or being on this podcast rather than through attempting a certain type of approach or voice Mm -hmm. publicly figure out if that fits me or not
0: yeah but i i think the one thing that the internet has provided us is just the opportunity to validate not perfectly, but validate ideas based off of the shittiness of metrics, right? So you know firsthand if I post a photo that's food versus a selfie and the food does way better than, yeah, less selfies or vice versa, right? So that inherently will always change and influence how you create. And it's mentioned actually in one of the earlier quotes in this piece by, by Seymour. He's like, yeah, actually, you think you're creatively free on the internet, but you're not.
1: But I just find that kind of discouraging, actually. Well, it's, it can be encouraging and discouraging. It's fine when it's food or selfies, in my opinion, but it's harder when it's true, deeply thought out opinions. Yeah. To see people respond well to one type of opinion and versus another, I think that does something to the way you think. Yeah. Uh, which I don't. Which I think Amanda's saying it shouldn't. Like, don't let it change how you express yourself. Mm-hmm. I don't think a lot about the word authenticity.
0: Yeah, it's kind of gone to the point now where it's thrown around liberally, in addition to community. But <laughs> eye roll from Charisse. <laughs> but I wasn't it, even
1: going to mention that eye roll. But, I don't like that. I instinctively did an eye roll because we obviously have a making community that I cherish. But the word community has been used in so many, many, many broad contexts that it means very little now.
0: It's just a a very quick and easy starting point for a conversation. That's all I look at it as. I mm-hmm. don't look at it as any deeper rooted meaning. It's just like when you mean community, you just mean a body of people. That's all. Sure. And then Group. from there. Yeah. Essentially, it's that.
1: But I think authenticity has is weird that authenticity is such a talking point. Because it, you would think it would be easier to just be ourselves. No, but... And we wouldn't be so concerned about whether we are being ourselves or not. It's such like a modern day problem. Like, oh, is this really Sharice? Was that really me?
0: What do you think it would take for people to achieve what you just said about a, a greater amount of self-defined identity versus externally defined identity?
1: That's a good question.
0: Because... We can see movements happen, right? Movements, there's nothing that's static. The only thing you can guarantee is that things aren't static in terms of one day, picturesque shots of people traveling are the norm and they're actually things that you want to see Mm -hmm. versus now it's about authenticity. It's about me making a pie at home and messing up along the way, but acknowledging that that I fucked up or something. You know, I think what I'm trying to say is that nothing is ever certain and will be guaranteed down the line.
1: What is it that people can do?
0: Is it science? Is it regulation? There's a lot of question marks that arise because we, we've talked about how consumer behavior can be influenced by governmental regulation, whether it's like a fast food tax. Sure. A social media tax.
1: It's interesting.
0: Because if you, if you were to remove performance metrics from the public facing aspect of social media, how would that change? And we do have an example that that fulfills that. And that's like Visco. I mean, it is a, a more of a visually driven thing, but what happens you just collected all the data on the back end? I mean, that's obviously why it exists. Like it's great data to have if you're an ad-driven social media platform. If you're selling stuff. Yeah.
1: That is interesting. I hadn't thought about it from a regulatory point of view. But actually we could regulate that you know like gdpr you could yeah do enough studies and say actually this is detrimental overall to society so we're going to regulate it yeah how how you're allowed to what kind of metrics you're allowed people yeah. i had only thought about it from a personal perspective like, which is that you should do more things offline
0: yeah but do you personally feel influenced by the performance of a post that you do like you'll you'll look at it if you open instagram and you get the little notification about how many likes or who who followed you do you click into it oh
1: yeah i click into it i'm not
0: but what's the reason why like is it
1: the thing i always think is interesting is for me personally is not so much the number which is i feel like very algorithm dependent whether someone has even seen my post but which individual's over, you know, all the different people I've come into contact with will comment on things. And that always surprises me. I don't know, like my perception, and maybe I'm just old-fashioned, is that when someone comments on, like actually types in something for IG stories or for a post, it means that they want some kind of contact. And it's never people that I really expect. mm mm-hmm. But uh, Sorry, that's not a metrics-related yeah. question. Um, not, not a metrics-related answer. That was not very helpful. Yeah. I like the idea of regulatory things, but I find it unlikely
0: yeah.
1: for that to happen. Th- this- so if we're talking about, you know, the original question you asked was like, how do you get people closer to that strong sense of identity separately from their public work? Then I think the answer has to be to make things before sharing them. And make things without starting having the intent of sharing it.
0: Yeah, my last closing thought is that you can't really have a capitalistic machine devoid of numbers because you cannot define growth. Like You need growth as a signifier of if things are growing and moving in a certain positive direction. You can have it, but you can't. You know what I mean? What if
1: you could do things qualitatively? It would still be a number though. But
0: qualitative is always difficult because it's, it needs to somehow track back to a number, I'd say. Yeah. Anyways, that's, maybe that is just something you'll never be able to solve.
1: Maybe not. I mean, optimistically, maybe we do metrics completely differently in the future.
0: Well, I mean, you know, we at Making hardly ever look at numbers. Like I know how many people unsubscribe or subscribe to our newsletter, for example. Or a Patreon, but it honestly don't care. It does care because you get my you get my my uh, existential crisis WhatsApps every every three weeks about it. But
1: (laughs) we do care, but we don't care. Yeah, we we do and we don't.
0: Which is perhaps why this thing has been so sustainable. Like you know, we always reference how many times we've done making it up, but it's because we honestly don't care that much about a quote unquote growth trajectory
1: yeah maybe it's like you can care about the reception of your work but you have to let it remain not so influential on the type of work you make
0: yeah that's all i have to say
1: i think that's a good place to wrap things up for the day if you are interested in hearing more about megan reading and listening to some of our stories focused on the sights and sounds of creative culture. You can visit us at macon.com M-A-E-K-A-N.com.
0: You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by sharing this podcast with a friend or supporting us via Patreon.com slash maken.
1: Also, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email myself at Sharice at Macan.com and Eugene at Macan.com. We love hearing from you.
0: I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is making It Up.